But you know, as I was listening, I was thinking that there's something that we could do to help tonight. And so I googled at the back of the room, which is never a good idea at the start of a sermon. Creating a winning Bumble profile. Yeah. Because Daniel made a few comments. And I thought, representative of the rest of Crossroads, others would be interested too. If you want a good Bumble profile, or a Christian alternative, be positive. As you talk about yourself, be positive. Let your photos tell your story. Not good? Let your photos tell your story. Be clear. Get creative and show your human side. Mm. Mm. And take advantage of Bumble badges. I don't know what that means, but that's okay. Bumble badges. Apparently they're good. Identity is what I want us to talk about tonight. And dating profiles are weird and everything else, but it's so funny, isn't it? How people want to project a certain identity to others. They, they want others to think something off them. Your creative photos that tell that story. They, they, they want people to have an idea of who they are because we're really concerned about how our identity is perceived. But actually, I think today especially, we're also concerned with pursuing our identity. It's almost like our identity is something kind of over here that we have to find at some point in our life, whether that's exploring different avenues of this, uh, what the world offers or different aspects of um, expression, and maybe most significantly, aspects around the area of sexuality. In order that we would find and gain happiness in knowing our identity. And this, whatever it is, elusive concept, is something that people spend their life trying to find some sort of happiness in. But tonight, as we think about theology in the wild, I want us to go to the Bible and to see what the Bible says about who you really are. And to take that truth and to briefly hear what the world says and to see how inconsistent it is with what the Bible says, especially, because we can't talk about everything, especially in this area, area of sexuality. So I want you to open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. It's at the beginning. I want you to look, first of all, at verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. If we're going to understand our identity, let's see what the Word has to say about it. Genesis chapter 1, reading from verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, now I want you to keep looking at those verses for a moment. And I want you to ask, not what does the world say, but what does the word say about your identity here? What does it reveal to us about men and women, about humanity at large? The very simple point is that we have been made unique. That there's something that's altogether different about the way God created men and women in this world from everything else. The rest of Genesis is talking about how God made all the world, everything that is in this world, he made. And in day six, he made all of the animals that move along the ground. It was a busy day. And yet the same chapter makes clear that there was a point in that day when something altogether different took place. It's amazing, isn't it? God spoke and all of these creatures came into being. 
And yet there's something altogether different when he makes the man and the woman. The text stresses that there is some incredible level of personal involvement in this moment. In fact, I think your Bible is probably similar to mine. If you look at verse 27, it's weirdly indented. Do you see that? It's not like the rest of the text. That normally happens in your Bible when it's trying to indicate some poetry or, or some sort of song. That there's something altogether different here in the type of story. It's almost like the text takes a break to sing a song. Because what is taking place here is altogether different. There's something to sing about here. I don't know if some of you have maybe read C.S. Lewis. Um, his Chronicles of Narnia, the very first book, The Magician's Nephew, you have this lion Aslan. And he's the creator of that particular world. And do you know how he creates it? He sings. He opens his mouth and he sings and trees spring up. And water starts to flow. And animals start to appear from the ground and take shape. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God kept his song for one. Well, for two. For the man and the woman. There's something altogether different in how God formed and made them. Uh, There's a word that's so special in the Bible. The word created. Those seminary nerds that are here, the word bara. And that word isn't used very often in the Bible. There's a lot of times we're told about things being made, but not things being created in this special way. But, but it is used here. In fact, in verse 27, it's used three times. This rare, unusual word appears three times in this text. Do you remember um, other parts of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, where you find repetition? It's trying to say this is something important. It's kind of like putting something in bold and underlining it in Microsoft Word. You think of Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The point is he's really holy. It's it's something we're meant to take notice of. Well, here, he says about men and women, they were created, created, created. Altogether different. Done with a, a level of care and intimacy, unlike anything else. And the text wants you to see that this isn't another animal. It's not another bird and not another dinosaur. Male and female, they are both special parts of God's creation. And it it has huge implications for how we understand theology in the wild, how we understand the world around us. This is why abortion is so sad. This is why the idea of euthanasia is so cruel. Because we're not talking about creatures. We're not talking about potential lives. We're talking about individuals who were created with a different level of care. Who were made distinct and special from all other things. Who were made to be God's image bearers. And God has made them in a special way and his fingerprints are all over them. They're image bearers of God. trying to look around and see who would be the best person to bring up. I didn't need to look. Jeremy, please come up. Come on. And stand facing your fans. His mom's not here. (laughs) That's true. That's true. We'll take a picture and send it to her. I want to tell you a little bit more about this incredible specimen. (laughs) Jeremy, Jeremy, it's for the the Lord here. (laughs) I want to tell you a little bit more about this incredible specimen of a man. (laughs) Wait for wait. The bones in his body are stronger than steel. You've heard me right. 
He has an organ, I think, in his chest that's pumping a heart. And it moves the blood all around his body. But if you took all of the veins, the arteries, the capillaries, and you lined them up end to end, it would wrap all the way around the world. And that little, that massive heart is pump, pump, pumping that blood all the way around that incredible journey. Now, you may have not taken time to notice, but you see this incredible nose? Not only is it... Chiseled. (laughs) That nose can smell over 10,000 different smells. I know. Smell about 9,000 right now. (laughs) Wow. And the tongue that will eat those tacos later can taste, I try to throw it in for you, can taste over 10,000 different tastes. He's an incredible specimen. But you know what the Bible says? You can sit down. (laughs) Do you know what the Bible says? What makes him special is he was made in the image of God. And that lifts him up to a whole other type of level. Uh, there's something about him that is actually made like God in a true sense. He's got an ability to engage and interact with, with God. He can talk to God and hear God talk with him. There's a potential for relationship that is totally different from the the strongest animal, the smartest creature, whatever it happens to be. There's a really good pastor, much better than the one you have tonight, Arkent Hughes. And he sat and considered Jeremy too. And he said, Though you could travel a hundred times the speed of light, past countless yellow orange stars to the edge of the galaxy and swoop down to the fiery glow located a few hundred light years below the plane of the Milky Way, though you could slow to examine the host of young stars luminous among the gas and dust, though you could observe close up the proto-stars, poised to burst forth from their dusty cocoons. Though you could witness a star's birth, in all your stellar journeys, you would never see anything equal to the birth and wonder of a human being. For a tiny baby girl or boy is the apex of God's creation. But the greatest wonder of all is that the child is created in the image of God. The Imago Dei. The child once was not. And now as a created soul, he or she is eternal. He or she will exist forever. When the stars in the universe fade, and even their memory disappears. A child made in the image of God will continue. What an incredible revelation God gives about the nature of every man and woman, boy and girl. Humanity is made special. That's our point tonight. Humanity is made absolutely special, made in the image of God. If you look in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, you see the same idea. We're given this impression of just how intimate God is, again, in the actual act of creation. We saw something of the intention in chapter 1. We see something of how it all took place. In fact, before you look at chapter 2, look back to chapter 1, verse 24. Listen to how he makes the other animals. 
It says, And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw it was good. But now listen to chapter 2, verse 7. And listen to the difference in the text. Then Yahweh God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Do you hear how intimate the language is here compared to chapter 1 and the description of those animals? The the idea here is that this is a hands-on activity. That word formed, it's it's that word of the the potter molding and shaping the clay. This is a handcrafted piece of work. There's care and precision going on. There's some extra level of attention to detail. And then you have what is a really hard aspect to describe. God breathing into the nostrils of man. The the language here is deliberately intimate. To a place where it makes most preachers really awkward. Because what's taking place here, it's an intimate picture. And it's really hard to, without crossing the line and becoming almost blasphemous, it's very hard to get across what exactly is taking place here because the idea is it's so close. It's so involved. It's trying to let you know this is, this is special and intimate. That God took that extra measure of involvement and personal engagement with what he made. He cares about them. He made Adam from the ground and it reminds us of humanity's frailty. For dust we, from dust we come to dust we will return. But it also reminds us that not only are we literally earthy, but that you were made from dirt, but you are distinguished from the rest of this world by the very breath of God. That that intimate act of breathing life into the clay body. It reminds us that even now we are sustained by the breath of God. But, but, but also that, that with every man and woman, there is a, an intimate level of connection. Unlike that, that no other creature in this world has, that we continue to have. Our world works so hard to make you out to be just another thing. And I, I'm going way off here. But I think sometimes even as Christians, we make huge mistakes in how we think about the way God views us, even outside of Christ. Too often when we come to tell people the good news, we start, don't we, with Genesis 3. God doesn't do that. He doesn't start with the fall. He starts by wanting us to be so clear that he made us altogether different. That that, that he made us with a level of involvement and intimacy because he is a God who has crafted an image-bearing quality, an engaging quality, and an ability to relate to him in a way that is altogether different from everything else. We we, we are in a society that has a self-worth complex. 
in, in the very the very first two chapters of the Bible says, actually, they're more valuable than they realize. They, 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 they're trying to find value in something. The Bible says you're way more valuable. You, you, the problem with society is their actual sense of worth is it's, it's way down here. It's far too low. Whatever it is, they try and find that worth in. They were made to relate to God, the Bible says. And we need to cry out to all of humanity, look, you have a God-given dignity. For you are made in the image of God. People today think of their identity as being tied to things, really cheap things in comparison. Your profession, the, the job you do or want to do, the major you have at college, the hobbies that you're engaged in. You, you, you're a football player, a soccer player, a whatever player. Or their appetites. Their identity is defined by their sexuality or their interests. That's not the seat of your personhood. That's cheap. It never can be or even could be who you really are. That's not you. The world's trying to get an answer for who you are. And, and, and that is not you. For your worth is found in your design. And you were made to bear his image. You were made to share a connection with God. And when we make the mistake, and it's so easy to do, on focusing on what we do or the impulses that we have, and we pretend that that's our identity, we find very quickly none of that ever satisfies. True sexuality is a gift from God. But it's still not who you are. Your ethnicity, your culture, it may be a special part of what makes you unique, but it's not fundamentally who you are. Your talents, your skills, your interests, uh, the things you enjoy, they may be good indicators of how you can be a help and a support to other people. But again, it's not who you are. It's not what affords you dignity. Instead, you are fundamentally an image bearer of God, made to reflect him, and there is nothing that can better that. No aspect offered in the rest of humanity grants greater significance than the the doctrine declared in Genesis 1 and 2. That is where value is found. That truth allows us to connect with and respect one another truly. When we see one another as real image bearers, that would change the world. If we understood each other to be real image bearers of God, that would change every engagement we have with each other. That would help us love our neighbors as ourselves. So I want you to put out of your head whatever weird idea you have about how you're like an ape or like a dolphin or whatever animal you're most interested in. You're distinct. And you're able in a unique way to engage with God. But the problem is our world has a different message. If, if, if you go home tonight and you're trying to understand how our world thinks about these things, read Romans chapter 1, verse 18 on. Our world is in rebellion against God. It doesn't want God. And so in order to push the very one who designed us out, it has to come up with an alternative explanation. And the best it can do is stupidity. That's the point of Romans 1. And yet because their rebellion is so determined, God gives them over to the very desires that they have. And what I want to do, because we can't talk about every aspect of your image-bearing nature, is I want to talk about this very particular area of sexuality in the time we have left. Just as a sample. Just to make the point that what the world says is going to help you and give happiness, 
and I think I want to do sexuality tonight because I think loud and loud and loud the world has trumpeted over the last couple of years that that's where happiness is to be found. Your high school, your college, wherever you happen to be, you're hearing that message. But let's think about what the Bible says about how that theology in the wild works its way out. So how does the world think about sexuality? Well, it tells us, doesn't it, that your sexuality is key to your identity. And it shouldn't be repressed. And it shouldn't be challenged by anybody else. It's rooted in this body-person dualism. The the world's come in and it's chopped you in two. So, So you can have your biology, you know, how this thing was made and wired. And yet there can also be a real you. A true you. That that sits outside of that. Your real person. And while the biology may operate in a certain way and expect certain things, the real you may need something altogether different. An altogether different body? Or an altogether different way of that body expressing itself in its sexual form? The media has caught on to this idea and trumpets it like it's a settled, determined, clear, obvious thing. But it's so unscientific. It, it's, it, it doesn't make sense in science. A couple of years ago, a media, the media reported to their chagrin, after lots of exhaustive examination, that there is no genetic link for homosexual behavior. In other words, there's no gay gene. There's no particular genetic reason why people are inclined to that particular form of sexual expression. So David Curtis, honorary professor of genetics at the University College London, said this study clearly shows that there is no such thing as a gay gene. Sexual The secular world has tried to pursue that for years and it still hasn't found anything that proves that this is the way I am. That type of language is unscientific. And yet we've actually fallen into an even weirder place where where there's this expectation in our society that as you go through high school and then college and the early stages of adulthood, that you should explore. That you don't really know who you are until you try these things. Until you think outside of the box. And the idea of questioning that, you know, path of exploration, that's now the taboo. In parts of the UK today, it's considered child abuse to not let your child go down those types of avenues of exploration. Sexuality Today has been made, I think, the key issue. This, the world says, is who you are. But that wasn't true of most of history. For most of history, your feelings didn't decide who you were. What you did with your feelings decided who you were. There's a particularly famous pastor in New York who will remain nameless, who talked about the nature of how society has changed. And he he talked at one point about, you know, Vikings, the ninth century Ireland, okay? They they came and they invaded Dublin. And and, and this particular Viking man, I want you to imagine, he has an inclination, strong inclination in his heart to homosexual expression. He attracted to other men And at the same time, he loves being violent and cutting off heads. Now, in ninth century Ireland, as a Viking, he goes fully into cutting off heads. But the idea of acting on that homosexual inclination, absolutely not. Because Vikings don't do that. And so he gives himself to the violence and gore, but no way does he allow anything else to happen because he controls those feelings. 
Now fast forward to 2022, Dublin, Ireland, and picture the businessman in his suit. And, and actually this gave him exactly the same inclinations and feelings. He too is inclined to homo, homosexual expression. And he wants to cut off heads and is extremely violent. He loves it. Well, what does he do? Well, he leads the gay pride parade. And he throws himself into that uh, sexual lifestyle as an expression of who he is. But at the same time, he doesn't cut off any heads. In fact, he goes to anger management classes put on by the business. And he does everything he can to suppress that other expression and inclination that he has. Why? What decided what he did? Well, it wasn't who he really was. It was society. What was deemed acceptable in the society around him decided how he went about expressing the impulses that he had. It wasn't true to him. It was something else that drove and shaped this man. Our society today is is pro-sexuality and every obscure, deviant expression of that that would depart from the word of God. And it's why the Christian worldview is so marginalized today. But I want to say that's not you. Your sexuality is not you. And I want to say it loud and clear tonight especially because it's so sad that, that society gets away with that particular lie. Because it doesn't end in happiness. It doesn't even give a temporary place of feeling yourself. It ruins lives. It ends in hurt just like every other sinful expression. Any type of rejection of God does that. And so I think as Christians, we have a message of hope to bring to people who are struggling even with those particular types of sins. You think of Jesus, he was the most caring individual who drew alongside those who were marginalized and ostracized in society. He drew alongside the sinners and the tax collectors, and he made known to them that there was a message of hope. Our world needs this message of hope. And in particular, it needs this theology about the dignity that they possess that is not tied to sexuality. What does the Bible say as we apply our theology in the wild? Well, it says your your sexuality has been designed by God. That's where it comes from. Sexuality doesn't begin in Genesis 3 after the fall. It begins in Genesis 1 and 2. God designed sex in the context of marriage. It's not a post-fall creation. It's part of God's perfect world and his perfect design. And so rather than look to what society says may be good or may bring happiness, we look to our design brief. We look to how God has shaped things to operate in this world. And he tells us that true sexual expression It's something that he designed and he created. Now, as we talk about sexuality, don't fall off the bandwagon on the other side. There's a lot of weird things that the larger Christian church does in the area of sexuality too. Sexuality has nothing to do with dressing your kids in blue clothes, your boys in blue clothes and making them only play with cars and then freaking out when they suddenly show an interest in cooking or acting or whatever weird stereotype you have in your head, that's not true sexuality at all. That's a, that's a dangerous thing. And I think it's caused a lot of harm and it's put a lot of people off listening to the true message of the gospel. For, for manliness defined by the Bible is altogether different. You, you, you think of the story of Jacob and Esau. Who's the stereotype man in that story? Well, it's big, hairy, you know, (laughs) Jeremy-esque Esau. (laughs) 
He hunts. He sweats and he eats. But Jacob, text says he was a smooth man. And he loved cooking. And he was a mama's boy. And he was the one that God chose from the beginning to be the means by which he operated. And the Bible says, Jacob, he loved while Esau, he hated it. You think of Jesus himself. You know, Matthew chapter 1, verse 29. Do you know how it describes Jesus? It says he was gentle and humble in heart. That doesn't fit in with American Christianity's view of masculinity. That's altogether different, and it's what makes Jesus altogether amazing. What I'm saying is, when we talk about true sexuality, make sure we talk about it in biblical terms. True manhood has to be understood by sacrifice, love, and service. That's true manhood in the scriptures, and that's what we're advocating. That's what we're talking about. So what does the Bible say about true sexuality? Well, it says the design brief goes something like this. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. That's God's design for sexual expression. It's not something that everybody receives. He also tells us that some are called to be single. And he also tells us that all are called to remain Um virgins until they find themselves in that marital union. But God has created sexual expression in the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. And sin, the Bible would say, is anything that falls outside of that. So so sinful distortions include heterosexual infidelity and homosexuality. Both break that design of commitment within the marital union of one man and one woman. Both are sinful because they fall short of the glorious design of God. And Christianity's goal in the area of the sexual debate is not to convince everybody in this world to be heterosexual rather than homosexual. That's not our goal. That's not what we preach. Rather, what we seek is a transformed society with people who are committed to living according to God's design. That's what we want. A homosexual sinner is no worse than a heterosexual sinner. Both need the gospel in equal measure. They need to know the love of Jesus. Christian, think about who you are in Christ. He is where your identity is found. If you're a Christian, Daniel shared with us about the transformative work God does in the life. If you are a Christian, you are in Christ. That's your identity. Never in your sexuality. It is in him. So so no longer are you a homosexual, attracted, and finding your identity in an attraction to those of the same sex. You're not that because that's a distortion of God's design. But neither are you a heterosexual by identity, finding your identity and an attraction to women, plural. Rather, our identity is in Christ. And what I'm committed to is wanting to live according to his design. That's how I'm going to express Uh, my sexuality and everything else. That's what controls me and holds me back from expressions that would be against his design. Therefore, my design sexuality in Christ can only be expressed by being committed to one woman in marriage. It's not realized in an attraction to a group. It's a commitment to one, for that's what the Lord has told me. And and so the Christian worldview insists that we put sexuality in its appropriate place. The world says, oh, you you can't squash that into a box. That's who you are. Christianity says, that's stupid. 
Absolutely not. For though sexuality, the Bible will make clear, is a gift from God, it's never been what makes you human. Never. You're an image bearer of God. That's what makes you human. In fact, the God-man, Jesus Christ, you think about him. He, He never had a sexual relationship. And yet the Bible makes abundantly clear he was fully man. In fact, he was perfect man. The Bible insists we don't need sex in order to be whole. Don't believe that lie that the world throws out. That hurts and that breaks and it leaves scars. Rather, the Christian worldview gives dignity and reason even to the non-sexual life. It gives dignity to the single It insists that without physical relations in your life, you can still experience deep, sincere love, emotional connection with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and even more importantly, with the Lord himself. Our world says you can't be human outside of sexual expression, but Scripture says of that single man, Jesus Christ, this is my son, and him I am well pleased. Our world says, I am what matters and what feels right to me must be right. And they sing, I am brave, I am bruised, I am who I am meant to be. This is me. And that's their focus. The Bible says the heart is deceptively wicked. Who can know it? In other words, you don't know yourself. And and your inclinations and your impulses, they're dangerous and uh, can lead you astray. The saddest part about the sexuality debate is that people embracing it think that's going to bring happiness and peace. And peace is only found in God. So what do we do? Friends, we bring a message of difference, of dignity and hope. Turn in your Bibles just as we come near the end to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just for a moment, and see the shift that takes place gloriously in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look at verse 9. says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor uh, adulterers, nor men, nor who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a lot of identity. A lot of different types of identity. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. And you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the spirit of our God. In other words, there was a time when you were once known by this. You once found your identity in this. But no longer. An identity can change because of the glorious work of Christ. Your identity is not in your sexual feelings. And a true identity is to be found in Jesus Christ. I don't know, maybe some of you tonight, you don't know him yet. And you're listening and you're thinking how weird this whole thing is. Because it doesn't sound like anything that you're pursuing in this world. That that, that everything I've said about how sexuality will not satisfy, it's just, it seems too hard to believe. Because at the moment, all your hope and all your aspirations are pinned to that. In love, please hear me say, it'll end in emptiness. And it'll end in brokenness. 
Because only in Christ is hope found. You were made gloriously in the image of God. The Bible says you were fearfully and wonderfully made. You. He cares. And he's made you with this potential to know him and to be loved in a a supreme way by him. And that is only to be found in Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is a true life to be found in him. The best, the truest, the, the most real life is only found in him. You know the way sometimes things stick in your head? Like There's just certain people, for whatever reason, lock in. Every time I fly to L.A., especially whenever you start to come in, and there's a point where you come over the hills and you start to see all the lights of L.A., there's a person that comes to mind. And it's strange because I didn't know him really, really well. But he's probably the first teenager at the time that I met in L.A. And he was a particular friend of Corey Williams. Some of you know Corey. Because Corey discipled him when he was in high school. And the guy fervently memorized huge sections of Scripture. And he came to church all the time. And probably in the high school ministry, the 180 ministry, he was, at the time anyway, considered the most zealous. And he went to college in Santa Monica. And then up to do a master's in Berkeley in San Francisco. And those two voices, the word of God that he'd spent so long memorizing and the voice of the world competed in his mind. And very purposefully, the world came alongside him and told him that the reason he struggled through life was he had never embraced his true sexuality. Today, he's estranged from his family, living in San Francisco, and living as a woman. And cut off from the very message that brings life. Friends, tonight... And indeed, every time you come to church, to Bible study, wherever, you're surrounded by truth. But it's so easy for that truth to get choked out by the lies. And that's what they are, lies of the world that promise you something that it can never deliver. That man doesn't even call himself that anymore. He is a brother. And his brother, probably in high school, you wouldn't have thought very much off, I'll put it that way. It wasn't bad, he just kind of like toted along. But compared to his brother, there wasn't that same seal. But today, he is actively engaged in the church. And he has a family that he loves and he cares for. And way more important than that, he loves Jesus above all else. And every time I see him, I haven't yet this trip, but every time I see him on campus, I go over and we have the same awkward conversation. Because all I want to know is, how is his brother doing? And it's sad because it's always sad. But he promises me that he prays every single day for him. And what's the difference between the two boys? Well, it's 
who they listen to. And tonight, for one more time, you have heard a true theology that God has given you value and dignity. And he says, Jesus, he invites you, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friends, tonight, you can know not just a theology that is true in the wild, but a Christ who holds the hand of the individual in the wild. And, and, and tonight, you can ask God for forgiveness, whatever falsehood you've tried to find your identity in. And you can look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, And you can know the the freedom and the reality of sins forgiven and the glory of being able to engage with the very one who made you. So friends, listen, not to me, but listen to the invitation of Christ to make sure that your trust is in him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, this world is so messed up. And there's so many other voices that can so quickly sound promising. So many hisses of Satan that whisper lies in our ear, promising things that can never be delivered. And Lord, we pray that you would clog our ears at the right time so we cannot hear And we pray, Lord, that you would also soften our hearts to the word of God. That you would give us an appreciation that there is no greater dignity than the one that you have afforded to every man and woman made in the image of God. But more than that, Lord, we pray that you would help us to know the, not just the dignity that you would help us to know the fullness of that image-bearing quality that is afforded to us, that we can know you and relate to you and walk with you. And we pray for us and ask, Lord, that you would help us to hear the invitation of Christ, the voice of Christ, and to respond, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. May our hope be founded and rested on him. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.